I realized there had to be another way out of that. A new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. This new holiday of yours is scratching me right where I itch. Let's do it then. All right. Festivus is back. Ladies and gentlemen, you know I think that people attacking ufology and ufologists uh, have an obligation to put facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. You know, that's a crazy view of mine. I, mean, I realize everybody feels they should be able to say what they darn please, regardless of whether it's true or not, only if it sounds good, you know. <laughs> the thing is that there are loads of reports of UFOs and no reports of how to control robots. <laughs> Let me give you a brief rundown on what we're going to be talking about here with the legendary Stan Friedman as we welcome him back to the program for the eighth time to celebrate the holidays. We will hear Stan's thoughts on a new abduction book which is coming out that he is very excited about. We're going to detail some of the silly statements made by steadfast saucer skeptics and he will deconstruct some of the debunkers most frequently used arguments against UFOs. That's really sort of the appetizer to the big meal, which is the traditional listener-submitted questions for the iconic father of modern-day ufology. As such, this bevy of questions yields numerous insights from Stan on a wide variety of topics, including his interest in other paranormal phenomena, life after death, the potential for secretly discovered anti-gravity technology, the possibility of interdimensional aliens, Bob Lazar, the new Mars rover, what may fuel UFOs, the death of Frank Edwards, and much, much more. Altogether, it is a jam-packed holiday edition of the program where we welcome back one of the cornerstones of BOA Audio and wish you all 
a very happy holidays with the great one of ufology, Stanton Friedman. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Stanton Friedman, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Stanton T. Friedman received B.S. and M.S. degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas on such advanced, classified, eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the UN, and has been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, the Betty Hill Marjorie Fish star map work, analysis of the Delphos, Kansas physical trace case, crashed saucers, flying saucer technology, and challenges to the SETI, silly effort to investigate cultists. He is the author of a number of books, including Top Secret Magic and Crash of Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident, as well as his magnum opus, Flying Saucers and Science. Additionally, he is the co-author of Captured, about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, and Science Was Wrong, also co-authored with Kathleen Martin. His website is www.stantonfriedman.com. Pretty simple, all one word. StantonFriedman.com. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, pour yourself a glass of eggnog and fire up the Yule Log, because it is time once again to rock and roll. This interview was recorded on December 12, 2012. Stanton Friedman on the 8th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Ladies and gentlemen, I am extremely proud to welcome you to the 8th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special, featuring, of course, the incomparable Stanton Friedman. He exists in rarefied air, not just in the world of ufology, but in the world of the paranormal itself. Uh, he is, in my opinion, the greatest UFO researcher of all time, and it's humbling and thrilling that he's embraced this holiday special with such gusto, and he appears here on the program every year to uh, celebrate the holiday season, answer questions from the BOA Audio listeners, and, and share some laughs, and, and really, in, in my own personal life, kick off the holiday season. Once I get off the phone with him, all of a sudden, I, I'm inundated with the fact that Christmas is only two weeks away, and I have to go Christmas shopping. It's, it doesn't really begin until I've talked to Stanton Friedman, so it's a real thrill to be doing it once again here. Eight years. Unbelievable that this tradition has, has kept going. Of course, he's the author of Top Secret Magic, Crash at Corona. Let's see if I can do these from memory now. Uh, Flying Saucers and Science. He's also the co-author of Captured with Kathleen Martin, and also Science Was Wrong. Right? They get them all. Yeah. There yeah. Go. Good show. Good show. <laughs> all right. Well, welcome back to the program, Stan. As I said, it's a real thrill and an honor to have you back here for the big holiday festivities. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I appreciate the fact that I'm still alive. What the heck? <laughs> hey, well, you know, the end of the Mayan calendar is only a week away or so, so we'll... Well, that's <laughs> we'll... part of what I meant. You know, after all, I'm confident, he says, hopefully. <laughs> I've noticed that, yeah, my, my confidence is, is high, but it, it ebbs every every so often as I see the, the calendar get closer, <laughs> yes. closer to the next Friday. 
Um, I think this is the first year in a while that I've talked to you that there hasn't been uh, a new Stan Friedman book in my hands uh, in the past few weeks or months. So, uh, you know, what's what's been going on for you in 2012? I'm sure a lot of adventures and traveling to uh, various exotic locales to talk about the, uh, the well, flying saucer phenomenon. Yeah, it, it, I've been no new book, but uh, I am writing a forward. As a matter of fact, it'll be finished this week for a book that I have read and I'm anxious for the world to see. It's called The uh, Alien Abduction Files by Kathleen Martin and Denise Stoner. Mm, yeah. Uh, and uh, this is a different sort of thing. Um, Denise uh, finally comes goes public with abductions uh, that her husband and she had uh, 30 years ago and since. Oh, wow. And she's been very active in ufology in Florida, state section director at one time and uh, abduction director, that kind of thing. Kathleen lives in Florida as well, and they got together, and their book is a straightforward kind of approach to two primary adventures, one Denise and her husband going public for the first time, and another that Kathy has worked on for a number of years, a kind of a lifetime of abductions on the the party that she's been working with, mm-hmm. and uh, the publisher insisted I write a forward for it. So I said, "Oh well, I guess I can do that." <laughs> nice, my, nice. My publisher, do you understand? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that that should be out within uh, three months or so, I think, uh, or early April maybe. Uh, Career Press, and uh, it's, it's a different sort of take on the abduction experience because. Both Kathy and Denise, uh, well, they worked together on a survey of common factors in UFO abductions, and they did dozens of people, those who've been abducted and those who haven't, to see, you know, whether there's any difference, and there is. There's certain features, certain activities that the abductees report far more often. And so that, you can read that actually on the, uh, on the internet that survey, Mm -hmm. but uh, the whole point here is to give us some facts. You know, do a lot of people uh, have uh, paranormal events take place in their home, for example, who've been abducted versus those who haven't been? Right. So there's a lot of data like that that is in the book, and that will be enlightening to people who think it's all a jumble. You know, for most people, yeah, they've heard of Betty and Barney Hill, Hopefully, per our book, captured the Betty and Barney UFO experience, but yeah. and they haven't heard a lot of other stuff, and they've heard a lot of nonsense from the nasty, noisy negativists, as I like to recall them when I'm being polite, <laughs> uh, about abductions. And so much of the opinion about abductions, uh, as about other aspects of the UFO phenomena, is top of the head nonsense. You know what I mean? People. Uh, Saying it's impossible, it can't be. Uh, it, it, we have to deal with those people. I can't afford to ignore them. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I take a certain amount of pleasure out of jibing them. Uh, <laughs> now I know. Well, somebody has to do exactly. It. Yes. Whiz. If these guys can't be held accountable, and they're not, uh, remember the four basic rules for debunkers. They haven't changed any. Uh, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. But the public doesn't know. I'm not going to tell them if you can't attack the data. Attack the people. It's easier. Nobody will know the difference. And do your research by proclamation. 
investigation is too much trouble. Nobody will know the difference about that either. So when you got those rules playing on their side of the of the field, so to speak, somebody has to stand up and say, "Hey, wait a minute, guys." Exactly. It, it's kind of I have to give you two crazy examples of that, and very similar ones. Uh, Bobby Schaefer. Uh, who worked with Phil Class quite a bit, one of the noisier negativists. Uh, he uh, was giving me a hard time for an article I wrote three years ago, and one of his his major jibes at me was he calls himself the flying saucer physicist, but he hasn't worked in physics for more than 40 years. Uh, and, you know, the only trouble is that that's not true. Uh, yeah, I was full-time as a physicist until 1970, then I spent 10 years full-timing as uh ufologist, if you will, and then I did a lot of work in the 80s when I moved here to Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. Uh, I worked on the commissioning of the Point Pro Nuclear Generating Station. You know, it's the kind of thing we nuclear physicists do. <laughs> yeah. I, I did a study and measured uh, radon levels, nice radioactive element in radon in people's houses in this area, did a study on uh, future technology scenarios for the province of New Brunswick. Uh, I did a look at uh, waste heat recovery and utilization at power plants, hmm. which is kind of fascinating when waste an awful lot of energy that could be used, uh, you know, for heating oh, greenhouses and and raising fish and doing all kinds oh, yeah. of other things. Oh, yeah, and use of electron beams for treatment of flue gas. That's a nuclear physics kind of thing. You know, so uh, he was full of baloney, as you might expect. And then somebody else uh, said, it's been 50 years since he worked as a physicist, which would have me stopping work, uh, you know, within a couple of years of, after getting my degree, which would be neat, but my <laughs> yeah. degree's plural. But uh, And so um, these are straightforward kind of things where people say dumb things that are easily checkable facts. I mean, if I told you Abraham Lincoln was the 19th president of the United States, you say, hey, Stan, you got some homework to do. He was only the 16th president. You know, let's get it right. Right. Well, I think that people attacking ufology and ufologists uh, have an obligation to put facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. You know, uh, that's a crazy view of mine. I realize everybody feels they should be able to say what they darn please, regardless of whether it's true or not, only if it sounds good, you know. <laughs> Well, it, you know, it, it, it's part of the history of ufology is the many dumb things that the nasty, noisy negativists have said over the years. And, you know, uh, it, it's like trying to explain the, the Betty Hill, Barney Hill case. As, uh, there was a television program on, and uh, they watched that, and that's where that story comes from. Well, they didn't watch it in the first place. And anybody who looks at the show will see that, oh, well, that's not what they saw or reported or anything else. But it sounds good, you know. Exactly. And Betty had dreams. Oh, she was telling Barney about them all the time, and what he said reflected the dreams. I've heard that argument several times. It's nonsense. And you can see that in uh, Captured, incidentally. And Kathleen uh, has all the tapes of the hypnosis sessions, of course, transcribed all of those, and then did a comparative analysis. 
Here's what they each said under hypnosis. They were hypnotized separately, of course, uh, when they were together. And those accounts match. Then here's what Betty uh, reported from her dream. Oh, not the same at all. And, you know, Barney wasn't interested in her dreams. He heard the story once, stuck it in the drawer, and that was the end of that. But it sounds like a great explanation, you know. Right, right. So it, 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 it's kind of weird how uh, these things pop out and get repeated and repeated again and re-repeated. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Pretty yeah. soon it's fact, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roswell's the same way. Uh get people saying all kinds of strange things. Why do all those people go running to you, Stan? <laughs> You're just making up stories, you know. Well, they didn't. I had to go looking for them. They should pay my phone bill for those years when Bill Moore and I were looking for witnesses, <laughs> you know. Uh, this is before the Internet, folks. Uh, you had to work hard to find people. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I don't get not. these debunkers. I don't really... Well, I mean, th that that... That leads to a question that I had for you here. Uh, you know, okay. in the introduction here, as you as you probably noted here or, or recall, I, I say I think you are the greatest UFO researcher of all time. I I have no doubts about that. And I, no, I would put James E. McDonald first. See, that's an interesting. That's that's an interesting point because I had this conversation with a, a prominent UFO researcher, and he said the same thing. He was a he was a James E. McDonald uh, supporter there for for that. Well, me too. I, uh, well, I guess but, let's talk about that. Didn't last what, very long, you know. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. Well, the the, the 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 leaping off point from that was was on James E. McDonald in the sense that uh, you know everything seemed to be going in the right direction, and then then he passed away, and and, and mainstream science never really got on board with UFOs uh, from that point on. Not like they had really even been in the first place, but at least they seemed to be no. giving it some consideration. Uh, are you surprised that it's mainstream science still hasn't gotten on board with this? You think some enterprising young man somewhere with with you know a whole bunch of letters after his name would would buck the trend and, and be willing to go for it like james mcdonald was well you know i i used to hope that i guess but i've learned that uh, the uh, the academics really have a problem they don't have guts enough to stick to do their homework first then stick their necks out and take the consequences and they're not bad look uh, you know i've had a chance to see how do people react to this subject you know, not just once or twice. I've given over 700 lectures, all 50 states, all 10 Canadian provinces, 18 other countries from Saudi Arabia to Korea to Australia to Brazil. And, you know, I, I, I've gotten around. And the people are very interested in this subject. And they will turn out in droves. But the academics just can't bear the thought somebody might think that they're interested in this nonsense. And every so often, somebody says something really stupid, but which helps to keep them from getting involved. We had an example just a few months ago. Lord Martin Rees, Rees the British Astronomer Royal, head of the Royal Society of London, made a really, I mean, he's, he has said stupid things about UFOs before, <laughs> but uh, he really outdid himself a few months ago by saying, only kooks see UFOs. <laughs> now, you know, does he provide any example of that? No, of course not. Does he reference any sources of information where anybody can check and see if he's right? Of course not. It's research by proclamation. 
And, you know, all you got to do is look at uh, J. Allen Hynek's book, another astronomer who was only the consultant to the Air Force for 20 years, Project Blue Book. You'd think he'd know something about the subject and would be worth reading. And he reports sightings by astronomers. Dr. Peter Sturrock from uh, Stanford uh, University, he reports, he did a whole survey of the American Astronomical Society. Plenty of sightings by astronomers. But Rees got headlines with those comments. And then, I guess he likes making headlines. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he said another stupid thing. We need to devote more time to worrying about things that are not likely but have great consequences if they happen. And he was talking about rampaging uh, electronic uh, beings. Uh, what do we call them? I, I, I don't want to say cyborg exactly, but that idea. Sort of like out-of-control robots? Yeah, that's the easiest way to put yeah, it, yes. Weird. <laughs> Where does that even come from? Well, he... <laughs> He says that uh, that could happen, and we should worry about that. Instead, people worry about things like plane crashes and global warming and something else. And, you know, the crazy thing is I looked up plane crashes to find out, well, should people worry about them? Yeah, hundreds of people are killed every year in, plane, in a train crash. Train, train, not plane. Yeah. And, and uh, actually, uh, not only do people get killed in these uh, accidents, but... Uh, uh, sometimes large areas have to be evacuated because of the stuff that gets spilled. You know, poison gases, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's a legitimate worry, actually. How legitimate? Now, he, he, he also doesn't talk. And this is the thing that surprised me. You'd think an astronomer would talk about asteroids. Right, yeah. You know, it doesn't happen every day, but when it happens, boy, you got a mess. And isn't it generally assumed that the asteroid, an, an asteroid, was responsible for the demise of the dinosaurs? You know, uh, the guys who ruled the planet for millions of years. And nasty old asteroid comes along, and global winter, or whatever you want to call it, uh, and uh, we lose all those big monster creatures. He doesn't talk about those. And he's, he's going to worry about robots out of control. But not aliens out of control, you know. Right, right. When you set that up, I thought he was. I thought that was going to lead to UFOs. It sounds the way he describes no. it. You would think that he would be talking about UFOs, not out of control robots. Out of this well, that's right. The thing is that there are loads of reports of UFOs and no reports of out of control robots. <laughs> Remember the last time the New York Times ran a headline? You know, robots take over big city in South America or something like that. So. This is a sensible astronomer. I mean, I must admit he falls in the pathway of past unsensible astronomers. A British astronomer royal in 1956, one year before Sputnik, mind you, yeah. said space travel is utter bilge. Nobody would uh, put out the money. And what good would it do? What we really need to do is build better instruments for astronomers. <laughs> and, you know, what field has benefited the most from space travel when it comes to areas of science? Astronomy, of course. So, you know, British astronomer royals seem to have a compulsion to say something stupid. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's their privilege, I guess, but I'd love to debate this guy. Uh, I'm sure he wouldn't. I'm sure he doesn't have guts enough. Uh, and he certainly knows he doesn't know enough. But, of course, he might presume if he doesn't know it, it doesn't exist, so there isn't anything to know, you know. Exactly. 
Uh, I'd like to see that debate. Yeah, me too. I've got a couple, and I mention them only because people say, well, I wonder how we do against those uh, those noisy negativists he talks about. Well, I've taken them on. And what distinguishes them is the things I just mentioned, the absence of knowledge on their part. Uh, Michael Shermer, one of my favorites, head of the Skeptic Society, you know, yeah. Yeah. A PhD in physics, never worked as a physicist, he was history of physics. But anyway, uh, we were on Coast to Coast Radio, and uh, he started with one of those typical remarks. He was asked, uh, what does he think about UFOs? And, well, this is like all those other paranormal subjects. There's a 5% residue where there isn't enough data, so you can't explain everything after all. Uh, that gave me a huge opening because I immediately cited the Blue Book Special Report 14. 21.5% couldn't be explained. The University of Colorado, according to the uh, UFO subcommittee of the world's largest group of scientists engaged in space research, the AIAA, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, 30% of the 117 cases they looked at couldn't be explained. Uh, Dick Hall's book about the UFO evidence uh it was 18% of 4,500 cases. And so uh, that debate, I got 80% of the vote because <laughs> he didn't know anything. Exactly, yeah. And Which is the smugness on their part that gets to me. I mean, it would be one thing if they, if they – well, you know, you said about the rules of debunkers. If I thought they were coming at it on a fair level, it would be one thing. Uh, you know, an open not. discourse. Yeah, but they're not, and they're smug about it, and that's the frustrating part. Well, I I debated at uh, the Oxford University Debating Society. That started way back in the 1800s, my goodness. A couple of guys even wore tuxedos. Nobody warned me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't touch the wine that they served before dinner, I will say that. I keep a clear head. Anyway, they had a packed house. And uh, my side, I worked with a lawyer uh, who has looked into abduction cases, among other things, and uh, Harry Harris. And uh, we got 60% of the vote. And uh, this was a bit surprising because I did seven different lectures in England on a tour there using trains, and I wasn't worried about train crashes. <laughs> Maybe I should have been. I don't know. <laughs> I asked somebody, gee, is there enough time? The connecting train is less than 10 minutes. He said, Stan, they always run on time. you got nothing to worry about. He was right. Now, maybe that's changed. But anyway, so we got 60% of the vote there. And then I took on Seth Shostak on uh, Coast to Coast. Now, Seth and I had met on the Queen Elizabeth II. We each got a free trip from uh, England to New York through the UFO magazine of England. Uh, Graham Birdsell was supposed to go with us. He unfortunately died just in time to miss the trip. Uh, anyway, uh, Seth and I each gave three lectures. We were polite to each other. He's a gentleman. And uh, we listened to each other's lectures. Now, in the course of mine, I talked about five large-scale scientific studies. And after each one, we had good crowds. The ship people said these are very good crowds for lectures on a ship. Uh, and after talking about each of the large-scale scientific studies, I asked, how many people here have read this? There was a couple percent. Seth hadn't read any of them, though. So then we did a debate on coast-to-coast, -coast, 
after a Larry King show on which we both appeared. And I got 57% of the vote. He got 33%. And uh, 10% said they didn't know who won. And later on, a year later or so, uh, he got asked about my book when he was on. And he mentioned it was Flying Saucers and Science, that it was on his nightstand. He didn't say he'd read it. <laughs> it was on his nightstand. But it, it's truly incredible they must give forgetting med uh, medicine to these guys. Uh, I have to think that they just, I, I have to think that he's read these studies by now, and I just think that he refuses to acknowledge them. I mean, that's the only explanation I can come up with. Or, 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 or there's some kind of mental block in his mind where he refuses to read them. But wouldn't you as a scientist want to, you know, know what the other side is going to say? <laughs> Look, Dr. Jill Tarter. Uh, just retired as an active SETI specialist. Now she's raising money for SETI. And she said, you can't give it up. When you've been close to something as important as what would be the greatest adventure in men's uh, history, you, you can't just give it up. And, you know, hearing a signal from another civilization is going to be the greatest adventure. Don't you think uh, capturing an alien might be? Uh, you know, wouldn't that be a little more to it? And she said uh, a few years ago, we might find another civilization as close as a thousand light years. This is based on Frank uh, Drake's stuff. And as close as a thousand light years. And when we make contact with them, they may help us solve our problems. Uh, I listened to that. Help us solve our problems. Hey, guys, we got a problem here. Can you help us? Two thousand years later, you get an answer back. Uh, that's not problem-solving in the way I look at things. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, but that's the great adventure. So I'm constantly, people are always surprised that I harp on SETI. Well, you guys are on the same side, aren't you? I say, absolutely not. They say, there ain't nobody coming here. And they won't give you an answer for, why would anybody out there send a signal here using technology appropriate to our technology. Right. We've had advanced technology for, what, 120 years? Let's be generous. Let's make it 200 years. And the aliens are stuck at that same level? Zeta Reticuli is a billion years older than the sun. You know, and I shocked, <laughs> I shocked myself, really. At one campus, I was going through how much technology has changed in my lifetime. I said... When I started working in industry, I was using a slide rule. Right. I looked around the hall. This was students at the uh, University of Detroit. Didn't see one, anybody bat an eye. I said, does anybody here know what a slide rule is? Not one person. <laughs> and, you know, that was less than 50 years earlier. But anybody who thinks we're stuck at the same level of technology as, say, Marconi was with his uh, radio signals across the ocean to Newfoundland. Last year, I spoke in Newfoundland for the first time. That made my 10th Canadian province. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> well, you know, but it, that's a key question. Why would you expect somebody out there to use our technology? And what is he going to say to us? Hey, I'm bringing a party at 20. We need dinner and uh, hotel accommodations. Can you arrange it? <laughs> what, what, what kind of signal are you going to get from these guys? Exactly. Now, this the 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 slide rule 
point actually reminded me here uh, of the other big question I had in my notes, and I, I hate to sound like this Martin Reese guy now, but <laughs> uh, this, this sort of topic came up in my mind after we spoke last year, and it's more of a question, I guess, about society and, and, and the, the way people are nowadays, but I was harping on this with, with Brad Steiger and a few other folks uh, at the beginning of the year uh, in interviews, and thought to myself, well, this would be a good thing to ask Stan. It's just this proliferation of people who are, like, plugged into smartphones, who are, like, who who are, are almost dis, disconnected from society in a way. <laughs> yes, they are. What, what do you make of all that? And is it a good thing or a bad thing for us? Is it the logical progression? You know, you, you, know, you say nationalism is well, the only game in town. Maybe that's the lead into the eventual globalization. Uh, you know, unfortunately, well, we're all going to be connected to the Internet, but... Uh, there's no question that technology has moved forward uh, communication. Whether that's an improvement or not, I'm not quite sure. But uh, I, I think that uh, people spend too much time with their smartphones because they're not as smart as they'd like to think they are. And it gives you a very narrow view of what's going on. And, uh, for example, while there's plenty of stuff on the Internet about UFOs, much of it is trash. Right. You know, you don't find the the really good stuff there and the good thinking. And uh, when I talk about advanced technology, for example, I uh, consistently find that the ancient academics are just not aware of how much research and development has been done outside of academia. You know, I, I had two different people tell me very sincerely, and they were smart people, Look, Stan, if Roswell happened, they'd have had to pull half the professors of physics from their colleges at the time to deal with it. And I laughed. What else can you say? You got Los Alamos with thousands of people, a good percentage of them engineers and scientists, who have appropriate security clearances. Yeah. You've got uh, not only Los Alamos and Sandia and Livermore and Oak Ridge and Hanford, uh, you have General Electric and uh, Lockheed and Westinghouse and a whole bunch of other companies. Uh, don't they realize that the you know the important stuff technology-wise goes on in industry or the national labs, yeah. not in universities? And I, I shocked somebody. His response was, "You're kidding." When I said that when I worked for General Electric on nuclear airplanes way back in 1958 that we employed 3,500 people, 1,100 of whom were engineers and scientists, and the budget that year for us was $100 million. And his remark was, you're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. That wasn't the biggest program around, but $100 million was a pretty good chunk of money in 1958. Oh, yeah. You know, it wasn't a university with uh, six professors and 20 grad students. And, you know... Uh, the, as a nuclear guy, again, I'm still amazed that when these guys bring up the fact you can't get here from there, you know, that's a constant refrain. Yeah, yeah, still hearing it all the time. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and uh, they never look at the details. And, for example, they're not aware that we've operated fission nuclear rocket reactor propulsion systems. Los Alamos did one, the Phoebus 2B. Uh, less than eight feet diameter, power level, 4.4 billion watts, 4,400 megawatts. That's twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam. And it was eight feet in diameter. 
And that was back in the late 60s. That was a fission nuclear rocket. I did work on studies of fusion nuclear rockets, and there's a reason for bringing this up. Uh, way back in the early 60s, and if they use the right stuff in the right way and kick particles out the back end of a rocket, they'd have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. 10 million! And that was back in the 60s. And the important reason for mentioning that is twofold. One, every advanced civilization is going to find out about fusion, because that's what makes the stars work. Right. You're going to look up there and say, where's all that energy coming from? The Lord Kelvin in the early 1900s thought the sun could only be uh, 30 billion years old because he'd run out of fuel chemical processes. Yeah. He was a little off. It's over 4 billion years old. <laughs> and the important thing is not only that everybody will know about fusion, but everybody will realize that you can build fusion rockets. And that means that the idiots of Earth would be in a position to bother the beings out there. If you were a sensible alien, you'd be worried about that. Absolutely. I, I say that and people look at me a little strangely. What do you mean, idiots of Earth? Come on, Stan. Well... Look, uh, the budget on the planet for things military is a trillion dollars this year. World War II, nice guys that we are, we killed between 50 and 60 million of our own people. We destroyed 1,700 cities. This is something to be proud of. This is something that somebody out there would say, oh, yeah, bring on those earthlings. They're sharp guys. They know how to kill people very well. I'm, come on. Exactly. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh and the, what what gets in the way of going to the stars? Money. It costs a lot of money to build a fusion rocket. Uh, and I don't think we should go out there, because I think we shouldn't take our brand of friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, I, working with uh, some of the, the idiotic things that people say is really quite something. Uh because it forces you to think about what what's the difficulty here? What's the problem with Lord Rees? Right. Well, he hasn't done in his homework. He presumes that if there were any homework to do, he would know about it, because after all, he's the Astronomer Royal. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not impressed by that, uh, especially given their past history. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is, you know, the mind of the skeptic and the debunker is is something uh, to behold. It is quite I wish confusing. somebody would do a Ph.D. thesis about the will not to believe. There have been about a dozen Ph.D. theses done on UFOs, one of them on how terrible press coverage was, stuff like that. Yeah. But I really think we could learn a lot from the resistance to the truth about UFOs. You know, quote all the stupid things that are said and see what's behind them and why they're wrong and what's with it, guys. And I notice on the Internet right now there's a lot of people talking about the scientists uh, belonging to the club, you know, and don't, don't do any thinking outside the club mentality. But uh, uh, And I, I know that feeling because uh, as a... Oh dear, I don't even have a PhD. And I, people said that to me as, as if I should say, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know. But that's not how I feel. What do you need a piled higher and deeper degree for? Exactly. <laughs> if you're not piling higher and deeper. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, 
I've uh, used up my allotted time here, and it's time to turn uh, turn the floor over to the listeners who submitted a, a bevy of questions for you okay. this year. So we'll uh, we'll get down to that. Uh, the first one comes from Vale. He asks, "What is your assessment of the field of ufology in 2012? What do you think ufologists are doing right, and what do you think ufologists could improve on?" Well, I think uh, they too could do more homework and be more willing to take on the, the noisy negativists. Also, I think there needs to be a more cooperative effort and to try to set some standards. I think uh, not enough of the UFO organizations bring in scientists to do, and I, I'm not talking about myself now, I'm talking about bringing in people who've, who've done their homework. Yeah. And I think there could be more of a forum MUFON tried to do a lot of this. I was rather disappointed in last year's uh, conference because all, all day Sunday was devoted pretty much to a bus trip over to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. No papers. And so the proceedings were very thin this year. Yeah. My paper was there, but there weren't too many others, I must say. I, that was disappointing. And they didn't reach out to the community enough, I thought. Uh you know, if you're going to put on a show, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, also, I, I would like to see more people from the engineering world get involved. And looking at the pragmatic side of things, this business of getting here from there, I, I try a little experiment uh, when I'm on campuses. Uh People ask me to do a little seminar, you know, for the physics department, something like that, in the afternoon before my lecture that night. And I tried a little game, especially when they tell me quietly, when the students will say, hey, they're out to get you. They're going to show you how stupid you are, you know. <laughs> oh, there's a challenge I love. <laughs> so I, I make sure I talk about several things that I know they don't know anything about. Uh, nuclear rocket engine is one, because I'll talk about it, put a sketch up on the board, and then, you're all familiar with this, aren't you? Uh, are any of you? No. <laughs> uh, and I'll show them the electromagnetic submarine, which is a real neat sort of thing, and uh, no moving parts, and uh, go through that. And you're all familiar with this, aren't you? No. And then I, I do something. Yeah, you could give me a hard time if you want, I guess. I ask, what's the numerical value of 1G? Everybody talks about how many Gs you can stand or can't stand, as the case may be. Yeah. And everybody says 9.8 meters per second squared, and they're very proud of themselves. I say, well, okay, how do you relate that to a Corvette? And they look at me, what, what do you mean? Well, we talk it's a high-acceleration uh, car. How many Gs does it give? And they've never put it in practical terms, so I have to tell them that 1G is 21 miles per hour per second. So if you're accelerating a car at 1G for three seconds, you're going 63 miles an hour at the end of the three seconds. And that's a pretty hot car. Yeah. Uh, most people know it takes five or six seconds usually to get to 60 miles an hour. Okay. Then I'll say, what's the speed of light? 300,000 kilometers per second. I say, well, okay, we don't measure anything else in those units. Uh, do you have any other units for that? And I say, well, uh, the easy answer is the speed of light's about 670 million miles an hour. And that's relevant simply because of the dimensions of the solar system. 
Well, Jupiter might be 500 million miles away, so it's an hour speed of light kind of thing, you know, yeah, that, right. rough notions. I say, okay, now the real question is, and it's a multiple choice question, you don't have to think about it too hard, how long does it take at 1G to get to the speed of light? Uh, the, the choices are a thousand years, a hundred years, ten years, or one year. How many think it takes a thousand? And then how many hands go up? A hundred, ten, one. The real answer is one. Hmm. That's all it takes at one G a year to get close to the speed of light. And people are shocked by that. Well, there's a book that says when you get to nine Gs, you die. <laughs> Which is hogwash. There's plenty of data around. Oh, if you're accelerating into a brick wall at 9G, yeah, <laughs> talking about getting smashed. <laughs> That's the way to do it. But a, a trained pilot can perform a tracking task while being accelerated at 14Gs for two minutes. That means at the end of the two minutes, he's going 36,000 miles an hour, and he's long since had a sight and off the earth. That's measured data. Big centrifuges that they ran tests with for the astronauts and stuff, yeah. you know. So what I'm saying is you have these people pontificating, uh, and, you know, like the speed of light uh, can't get anywhere near that. Well, the Large Hadron Collider, 99.999% uh, of the speed of light, uh, that's pretty fast. Yeah. That's a machine we Earthlings have built. You know, we're not sending people at that acceleration, but we particles, so that's a, a start. Right, exactly. We're on our way. And, you know, when, when you look back to uh, Magellan's time, I mean, I wasn't alive then, but uh, believe it or not, <laughs> 1523 or so, his ship took three years to go around the world. Uh, then there was uh, around the world in 80 days. And you know what? The space station does it in 90 minutes. Exactly. That's you, a huge change in a few hundred years. Now, it does appear, I'm going to piggyback on a Vale's question here. It does appear that ufology has sort of taken a turn where there's a schism in a sense between the, the study of the phenomenon still, which is what it, where it was all along, and, and then there's the whole activism aspect of it. There's, there's, the activism has yeah. really kicked up in the last ten years. So. Yeah, that's true. And For good and bad. The internet. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the internet's out there. Uh, there could be a lot more done, but it takes courage, and we don't see a lot of that. And also, uh, you know, I, I'd like people to have a greater understanding of national security. I get told that everything is declassified after 25 years, or governments can't keep secrets. Uh, head of the Hayden Planetarium, you know, said that uh, the proof that governments can't keep secrets is how much we know about Pre President Clinton's genitalia. <laughs> I mean, think about that for a minute. What a stupid remark to make. Uh, says Shostak went uh, in a different direction. He said that... Uh, the proof that governments can't keep secrets, which is how bad a job FEMA did with Katrina. Now, what's that got to do with anything? Yeah, I didn't but... hear CIA, DIA, NRO, NSA. Of course governments can keep secrets. Loads of them. I helped in my small <laughs> corner of the yard, so to speak. But uh, there's a lack of realism in ufology where I think people need to Try to find out what the truth is about 
keeping secrets, for example, how much is the black budget each year, uh, you know, how many people have access. There are still people who tell me that if you got a secret clearance, you can see everything that's secret, <laughs> leaving out need to know, you know, a minor detail. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think we, we we need more work in those directions. Okay. Next question comes from Radish. These are some message board people, so some of them are little uh, kooky names. Uh, Radish wants to know if you are interested in any other aspects of the esoteric outside of ufology. Well, sure. Uh, but how do you know it's outside? Uh, for example, I think that it would be astonishing if aliens didn't make use of telepathy, of mind control, mind reading, didn't know about reincarnation, uh, all of these things. I think that goes with the territory of being an advanced civilization. Hmm. We fight it like crazy. You know, prove it, prove it. Uh, one of my pet peeves is when people say, the essence of science is reproducibility. Uh, my classmate Carl Sagan said that when I last visited him. Well, there are, reproducibility is nice on those situations where you can control everything. But uh, a solar storm, I can't predict it. I can't control it. I can be ready to make measurements when it happens. Right, right. And that's part of science, too. Science isn't just reproducibility. Uh, and much many scientific discoveries have been made totally unintentionally, so to speak, you know. Somebody was smart enough to say, gee, there's something I don't know. Why don't we check this a little further? Think of penicillin, for example, or x-rays. or You could dismiss all this stuff. Oh, I made a mistake somewhere. Let's go on to something else, you know, instead of saying, ooh, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what we need. So I'm interested in those other areas. Uh, and uh, if you want to call them paranormal, go ahead. Uh, I don't want to take the easy way out. Uh, and say, well, everything has an explanation, but it's all paranormal, and, you know, we, we can't look into it. Right, right. And also, right along with that, just because you don't know how to do something doesn't mean it can't be done. It means you don't know how to do it. Exactly. And that's not the same as saying it's impossible. That, that was going to be the title of the book, uh, Science Was Wrong, by Kathleen Martin and I. It's impossible, isn't it? <laughs> uh, the publisher changed it to Science Was Wrong. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, next question comes from Mystery Man. He wants to know, do you believe in life after death, and what is the one stunning fact in science that you have learned that makes you think that there must be a God and a greater purpose to our existence? Oh, boy, I don't is know it? one stunning fact, <laughs> and I'm not sure that there is a, a God. I asked a friend of mine in Cincinnati a lot of years ago as a professor of Bible at Hebrew Union College, and a, a real scholar. And I said, you know, I'm not even sure there is a God. And his re response was, was great. He said, so long as you're asking the question, <laughs> that's, the, that's what matters. So uh, I'm in impressed by the huge size of the universe and how much we don't know because we haven't been around very long. So there, there must be something bigger than us. It wouldn't take much, I should think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what was the first part of that question? <laughs> the, uh, uh, the uh, yeah, Beyond God, he asks, uh, do you believe in life after death? That was sort of the... Uh... 
And yes, uh, and there's a new book that made Newsweek magazine. And I think I heard about this. Yeah, the, the neurologist or something like that, right? Yes. That had a near-death experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that was impressive. And yes, I do believe in life after death. Uh, Dr. Stevenson uh, did a lot of interesting work finding the young people who knew stuff they had no business knowing, mm, no way yeah. of knowing, et cetera, et cetera. Do I understand it? No, but I think. It's real, and someday we will know a lot more. Do I think life goes on? Well, yes, but not life as we know it. It's more the spirit of life as we know it. And so, yeah, I I think reincarnation is very much worth investigating, and I'm very impressed by the quality of the research that's been done by people like Stevenson and others. Um, one of the chapters in Science Was Wrong gets into some of these areas and how science is fighting like crazy to avoid them, uh, telepathy being one. There are all kinds of good, solid scientific studies, but you don't find them referenced by the debunkers. <laughs> exactly. Well, that, that reminds me of a, uh, of a conversation that I had. Oh, now I'm, I'm, I'm losing her name. She wrote, the, she wrote the books with Phil Imbrogno before Phil uh, <laughs> had, his, had his kerfluffle. Uh, oh, <laughs> trying to think of her name now. Oh. Well, anyway, that, it reminds me of a, of a conversation I had with a previous guest who, uh, you know, we sort of talked about this idea that life after death may be more upsetting to the status quo than, than uh, at least knowledge of life after death may be more upsetting to the status quo than knowledge of, of UFOs and aliens. So the government has just as much interest in keeping that under wraps as it would the UFO enigma. Right. Anything that upsets the status quo, uh, we don't want that. Exactly. <laughs> Rosemary Ellen Guiley was the guest, so oh, yes. I remembered yes. it just off the top of my head. Uh, the next question comes from Hillbilly. He wants to know if you think the U.S. government or any other government or group on the planet knows the secret to anti-gravity and is sitting on it to not upset the status quo. I, I don't know whether they know it or not, but I don't think that would be the reason for sitting on it. Uh, one of the things we find over the last, uh, let's say, since 1940, when a new idea for technology comes along, somebody builds it, uses it, and finds a way to use it in war. Hmm. It's the biggest reason I don't think the Germans built flying saucers, because if they had, they'd have used them in the war, and they didn't. So I, I don't, whether they know the secret of anti-gravity, I think they've learned some information, but what are you going to do with that? These things are only worth pursuing if you can do something useful. Jet engines, for example. You know, the, the Brits were ahead in the jet engine game, but they didn't pay any attention to them. The Germans caught up and exceeded them because they pursued it. But the, the resistance to new ideas in technology or anything else is pretty strong. So I, I think that uh, if we not only knew how but had managed to do it, that it would be being done. Uh, that seems to be, you know, the only reason governments would spend huge amounts of money to work in these areas is for military purposes. Yeah. And incidentally, when people talk about the disclosure project, everybody should tell us everything they know. <laughs> now, I don't want everything out on the table because there is a legitimate national security aspect to it mainly warfare-related technology. And unless you're going to have the Russians, the Chinese, the Koreans, uh, the English, the French, etc., 
reveal all they know, why should the United States put it all out on the table, what they have learned? So, you know, uh, yes, I'd like to know more about anti-gravity, but I don't think we've been able to build successful ships. I know there are people who say we've used anti-gravity to send people to the to Mars and set up a civilization there. I'll believe it when I see something and that would indicate not only that we have done that, but that we are using this technology for military purposes. Right, right. All right, the next question comes from One to Believe. He wants to know if you think that NASA will release confirmation that extraterrestrial life exists within the next few years, and then he puts the caveat that it may be as simple as admitting there are microbes out there that aren't from down here, but it could be more exciting than that. Well, I, I think NASA is pretty conservative, and I think that, uh, you know, it's like Curiosity sitting up there on Mars. And there, there are people who think our first craft to land on Mars actually found microbial life. But uh, who cares about microbes, darn it? When we look, we find life is everywhere, whether it's in the hot springs, you know, down below the ocean or in the very cold reaches of the planet or with this very low oxygen. Everywhere you look. Right. There's life. So when if we now, what would be surprising, you see, is if we didn't have reports of alien visitations. Because if, if, as soon as you allow for, see, it, life seems to occur wherever, everywhere. Then if you say, well, wait a minute, we haven't been around very long, that means somebody else got started long before we did. So that means they would have developed life. They would have figured out the secret of fusion or whatever comes next on propulsion. So they should be coming here. What would be shocking is that there were no reports of aliens coming here. Right. We got tons of them. <laughs> you know, you don't need to look very far. Not only coming here, but abductions and physical trace cases and radar visual sightings and all this kind of stuff. The evidence is there. And I, I have to bring up General Carol Bolander, the Air Force General, whose memo in 1969 led to the closure of Project Blue Book. Mm -hmm. And he had nothing to do with Blue Book. I mean, he was on the lunar excursion module and we landed in July of 69, and yes, I think we went to the moon. <laughs> and so as he told me when I talked to him 10 years later, the, you know, at least he didn't have to work 12-hour days anymore. He was asked, what should we do about Blue Book? He wrote a memo, which led to the closure of Project Blue Book. But included in the memo was a statement that reports of UFOs which could affect national security are not part of the Blue Book system. They're investigated using uh, JNAP-146 or Air Force Manual 55-11. Yeah. And two paragraphs later, he says, if we close Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report UFO sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures designed for that purpose. Now, that's a momentous thing to have said. I located him. I talked to him. I don't know anybody else who had. He's dead now, so I don't know how to reach him. Maybe somebody in the audience does. <laughs> You know, uh, and I said, it sounds like you're talking about two separate channels of communication. He said, yes. In other words, if a saucer goes down the runway at a SAC base where nuclear weapons are stored, that's a national security problem. Right, right. Because ain't supposed to be nobody there who doesn't have appropriate clearances and stuff. But if you and I go out in front of my house and watch a flying saucer go over, 
What's the big deal? It happens all the time. UFON is getting more than 600 reports a month. Uh, you know, so no major media group has ever played up what Bolander said. And I find it very powerful because it proves the Air Force has been lying since 1969. They said, we don't know anything about UFOs. <laughs> Majestic 12 does, not the Air Force. Okay. <laughs> now I want to jump back to a point that you made uh, about how if, if since life seems to spring up everywhere, it would be surprising if they weren't coming here. And I'm not sure if we've ever really sort of visited this idea on, on our many, many, many conversations in the past, but, but it's, it's seen sort of a renaissance in the last few years. What do you make of the whole uh, ancient astronaut, ancient alien theory, that, that they were here before us, maybe they created us, or at least were visiting us and tinkering with society or whatever uh, back in the day? Well, you know, I certainly think that there have been past visitations. I think, look, the, the major job of government is supposed to be to protect its people, national security, planetary security, whatever you you want to call it. Yeah. That means, I think, that people have been checking us out, beings from outer space, have been checking us out for a very long time. And I, I listened to a talk by two professors from the University of Delaware once. They had looked at about a dozen ancient societies where there are still people around who speak the languages and stuff. Every one of them had stories, and I won't say myths, had stories of craft landing and beings getting out. We're not talking gods. We're talking vehicles. Right. And beings inside. So I think that there have been ancient astronauts, and there are probably rules of conduct. You know, you don't interfere. You check things out. Because you can't afford to have some idiots like us come out and bother you. You know, one Pearl Harbor was enough, wouldn't you say? You know, yeah. or a surprise attack. And remember, <laughs> one of the things we talk about in uh, Science Was Wrong is the fact that there was a long battle uh, in the military, starting with Billy Mitchell after the First World War. He was a pilot in the war, and he said after the war he had guts enough to say that uh, warfare has been changed forever by the airplanes. We'll be sinking big ships from airplanes. Secretary of the Navy says, I'll stand on any ship he's going to uh, sink. Ha, ha. <laughs> and then, you know, the ultimate, and, and Mitchell was court-martialed. Oh, wow. Uh, in November of, the end of November in 1941, the Army-Navy game had a program in which there was a picture of the USS Arizona with a statement to the effect, nobody has sunk a battleship from the sky. Eight days later was Pearl Harbor Day, and the Arizona, that very same ship, went down, killing 1,100 people. Oh, wow. Uh, because the Japanese knew you could sink a ship from the sky. We didn't seem to know that yet. So uh, what I'm suggesting is that any advanced civilization is going to be concerned about its neighbors, meaning those within interstellar travel distance, which is quite a ways. And so the idea of ancient astronauts and all that stuff makes sense. Yeah. That doesn't mean everything that uh, I like Von Däniken, incidentally. Sharp guy. Sharper than some of his critics, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I'm not saying everything he ever said was true or was the correct conclusion to be derived from the data at hand. But I think you can make a strong case that there have been past visitations, yes. Okay. 
the next question comes from Robert C. And uh, I should add the caveat that I chastise him for this question because it seems like every year we get this question. And uh, I'll say this is the last year we'll do a Bob Lazar question because he, <laughs> he wants to know, as have the emailers in the past, want to know uh, – he wants. He would like to know your definitive answer to the credibility of Bob Lazar. Read my article at <laughs> com, in which I go into gory detail into Bob Lazar and Colonel Corso, for that matter. Bob Lazar is a very bright guy who lied about his background. He is not a scientist. He didn't go to MIT. He didn't go to Caltech. Uh, he didn't figure out how... Uh, saucers work with element 115 or 118, depending which book you read. Uh, he did work, uh, a sharp guy. He worked at Los Alamos as, well, the technician, I'll call it. Professors would bring, uh, would go to Los Alamos to do experiments, physics experiments, on a big uh, accelerator that they had there, because unique in the world. Uh, and they couldn't bring all their staff with them, you know, all the grad students. So Bob worked for them. Sharp guy. Last I heard, he was selling nuclear stuff in the state of Michigan. Yeah. And that was about it. Now, and just as the classic lie, he was asked at Little Alien in Rachel, Nevada, you know, on the extraterrestrial highway, um, if he could name any of his professors. I had made a point earlier than that, that, hey, I'm a lot older than he is, and I can tell you the names of my professors at University of Chicago, MIT, and Caltech. They ought to be names we can check on. Hmm. He said, let's see now. Uh, Bill Duxler, he'll remember me from Caltech Physics. Well, uh, he picked the wrong guy because uh, I'm a member of the American Physical Society, and so I looked at my directory. There's William Duxler. I'm there, too. No Lazar, I should add. <laughs> uh and so I called uh, Dr. Duxler, Ph.D. in physics, worked on the West Coast, yes, not far from Caltech. Uh, Bob had said he'd remember him from Caltech physics. He worked at Pierce Junior College. Uh, I've spoken there, as a matter of fact, out in the San Fernando Valley. And he was angry that somebody was using his name, so he checked. And Bob did take a course under him at the very same time when he was supposedly at MIT. <laughs> Uh, and I talked to five different people at MIT, and Bob is nowhere there. Couldn't the government have covered up his records? I talked to the legal counsel at MIT. You know, they've done classified work since the 40s, and they're not going to tell you the details of that work. That's true. But the legal guy, the legal counsel, said there's no way to hide anybody. They may not tell you much about everybody, but uh, your name is in so many places. And guys went through yearbooks and stuff, and they couldn't find a sign of Bob. Yeah. And so, to make a long story short, read the article. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and it's got all the details, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And I repeat, he's a smart guy, but he's not a physicist. He didn't go to MIT. He didn't go to Caltech, and he didn't use Element 115. Which, incidentally, he early on had said they, that Los Alamos had 500 pounds of the stuff. It's got a half-life less than a second. There is no way to compile 500 pounds of something with a half-life less than a second. Yeah. Now, do, what do you 
in, in light of the fact that this is the third year in a row, I think that we've got Bob Bazaar questions. What do you what do you attribute the ongoing the, the continued fascination with this guy, even though the story's been pretty well debunked in the, you know over the years? Because people will continue to bring it up as an example of the stuff that the public doesn't know about this smart guy out there. I, I still get asked about it all the time. Yeah, I can't help it. Well, you won't be asked on next year's program. We're putting, okay. we're putting it in the rules. No more Bob Lazar questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I told him. I said nothing has changed in the last year that would change Stan's opinion on on Bob Lazar. But we'll ask him anyway. Um, okay. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon. Just a few more days until Christmas, Tone. You've been naughty. Well, nice. I'm Tony Kornheiser. I've been Jewish. Let me sort of ask this one more time. Right. Naughty or nice? No, it doesn't really matter, does it, if sure. I've been naughty or nice? Sure, because you never know what other presents you might get or be denied. I've been nice. I've oh. been really, really nice. Something from Perkins. You have away. been naughty. You. There are pictures of you. <laughs> it's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy holidays. It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we smile a little easier, we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. Jim V wants to know if you can envision a peaceful, orderly disclosure event. It's hard to imagine our government voluntarily disclosing the ongoing presence of extra humans or extraterrestrials without incurring a public backlash that could easily escalate to violence. Even in a forced disclosure scenario, such as, you know, the aliens cause it on their own, how could we believe the government was finally coming clean after so much misdirection and deception? Would there be a parade of world governments saying, yes, we knew all along? Well, uh, the scenario I've envisioned in the past has been, how about if two highly trusted individuals around the world were to make a public pronouncement? My favorite choice would be the Pope and the Queen. And they're about the same age. It's not such an odd couple after all. <laughs> well, the Pope's on Twitter now, so it's possible. Ah, okay. We're moving <laughs> in the right direction. I was shocked uh, just a couple of years ago when he said, well, there's no reason God couldn't have made our brethren in outer space, uh, just as he made us. And my first thought was, who told him something? <laughs> <laughs> and then and quickly, saying, someone got the queen on the line. <laughs> what I'm saying is that the the release has to be made sensibly. And that's why I picked sort of two neutral people. Right. Uh, and they would have to say that we have been reliably informed that the planet has been being visited, and that there will be a number of conferences held in the next six months with representatives from many different countries uh, reviewing the implications of this from an economics, a religious, uh, you know, all kinds of viewpoints, psychological. Uh, in other words, in an orderly fashion, not dump everything out there to begin with, and you don't need, I mean, the important thing is we're not alone. Not whether we can duplicate their craft, because obviously we can't yet. Right. So I think it would be a time for international cooperation. And the, the thing that people want to forget, especially Americans, and I'm a dual citizen of the United States and Canada, 
We're at the opposite ends population-wise. Canada's got about 35 million people, the U.S. 310. But wow. China has 1.3 billion people. India has a billion people. So the real question is, who speaks for planet Earth? Who can negotiate landing rights, uh, you know, sales <laughs> possibilities for alien goods? Uh, you don't say one person, one vote. No American government would agree to that. You know, so there are some practical problems that need serious attention uh, without giving out the, the details. Mm. It's a, a, a major event, of course. But you don't need to put it in such a frame that everybody wants to run out and buy a gun to keep themselves from being abducted by those nasty aliens. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Uh, Roger V. wants to know, do you allow for the possibility that some so-called ET phenomena may be other dimensional reality interlopers as opposed to physical beings from other planets in our galaxy? Well, I won't rule out that possibility. I see no reason to say it's true. It, isn't it startling enough that we're dealing with uh, real aliens, so to speak? Uh, I, I don't rule out much, but let's go with what we know, uh, you know, uh, and take it from there. That's a big enough story in itself. Right. Uh, and uh, incidentally, I mentioned uh, religion before. Um, I still still strongly recommend Dr. Barry Downing's book, The Bible in Flying Saucers. He's got a unique background, Bachelor's of Physics and Doctor of Divinity. Who else mm. studies divine physics? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at the Old and the New Testament in a very sensible, rational kind of way. And uh, we mentioned before about, uh, you know, ancient astronauts and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's clear that for thousands of years there have been beings coming here now. That would only be shocking if you went along the Pat Robertson Trail. The world was created in 4004 B.C. and uh, you know on a Sunday, I think it was a Sunday afternoon in October. Anyway, <laughs> well, that is a very different view than it was uh, four billion and four B.C. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think we need to look at us. Well, I'm reminded that the Brookings Institute study said one of the people, one of the groups that would be most affected by disclosure, would be the scientific community whose status would certainly be strongly challenged. They're not at the hop, top of the heap anymore. My goodness, we can't have that. <laughs> I'm going to piggyback on that question uh, with my own question here, and that's, you know, you're sort of like my bridge to UFO history. You've seen this whole thing evolve over the last uh, 40 years plus. 50. 50. There you go. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Has now in in the last few years, you know, I've only been in this for ten years, uh, and in the last few years, I've definitely seen sort of the interdimensional uh, hypothesis gain ground. Has it always? And and you know, we we kind of know how this disclosure thing sort of had its ebbs and flows. Is it that same way with the interdimensional theory, or is this a relatively sort of new development in in UFO thought? Well, I, I think it's a relatively new development. I, I think. You know, interdimensional is great for science fiction writers. That's been a theme for a long time. You know, even think of the Invisible Man. It's sort of along those lines. Uh, and I, I still don't have much place for it. That doesn't mean I'm ruling it out. But when you got real solid three-dimensional things that leave marks on the ground and, and grab people and 
show up on radar and all the rest of that. Yes, it would be nice if you could find a way to pop in and out. Would that be the greatest ploy? Uh, but I, I, it isn't necessary to explain what's going on. It's an easy way out. Well, we don't worry about how they get here. They just pop here, you know, interdimensional. You, you warp space and time. And I get a kick out of the, uh, the theoretical cosmologists who are quite happy to talk about string theory and 11 dimensions of space. And somehow you wiggle those around and you can pop from there to here without any energy. You know, it's very easy to do. That's a, uh, I, I think it's a cop-out, frankly. So I'm not saying we won't find how to do that, and we are doing some mysterious things about particles from here and there kind of thing. But why don't we deal with kind of three-dimensional world? Uh, you know, these things show up on radar. They show up on cameras. Uh, they make marks on the ground. Uh, what more do you want? Yeah. I mean, it's tough enough to deal with those things without worrying about the warping space and time. Right, right. Well, it reminds me of a conversation uh, I had with Lauren Coleman about Bigfoot. Bigfoot's sort of uh, assailed by the interdimensional uh, hypothesis that's come up in recent years, too. And he, I think he cited, I can't recall, uh, maybe John Keel or uh, Charles Fort, but he said, you know, you can't really answer an unknown with another unknown. So it, it, the interdimensional part, we're just getting further down the rabbit hole of uh, things we don't quite understand. That's right. So that's, that's right. I don't have a lot of faith in anything John Keel says. <laughs> I had some dealings with him, and in one letter he had four flat-out wrong comments that he made. So that's disappointing. Oh, that's too yeah. Bad. I was disappointed. Um, Bob to Miss Prime wants to know. If you could share the things that have caught your interest over the last five years in ufology slash paranormal, and then he puts uh, events, books, movies, ideas. Is there anything you're excited about or find intriguing? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm intriguing, uh, intrigued as much by some of the science that's gone on and the, uh, you know, the Large Hadron Collider and stuff like that. Man gets closer and this a particle here influencing what's going on with a particle over there, which is kind of weird. That intrigues me. Uh, I'm also, how shall I put this? Uh, I'm disappointed uh, by the fact that there haven't been more PhD theses done about UFOs, that the lack of curiosity on the part of the so-called scientific community I would have thought that they would have guts enough to get involved, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And their timidity uh, surprises me. I'm disappointed in that. But I haven't, you know, I, I haven't found any things that are really totally shocking on the part of the aliens, as far as I can tell. Uh, the government sometimes makes me wonder a little bit, but. You know, people say, why would they continue to lie? Uh, there's another project, incidentally. I've written the forward to the two volumes of the Roswell Report. You know, that huge one yeah. versus fiction in the New Mexico desert, and the Air Force supplied the fiction, and then there's the other one, <laughs> case, case closed with the craziest explanation, you know, crash test dummies, which weren't dropped until six years. There's time travel for you. Until six <laughs> years after Roswell, after all. 
the uh, my publisher is uh, Cosimo Books is, is publishing these, and I wrote the forward for the two new volumes. So I'm, I'm intrigued with that. I don't know how people are going to go down that pike. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's. I will be surprised on occasion, and I would hope. Uh, I mean, I hate to see all those trees cut down for those books, but what the heck? <laughs> uh, well, you know, the the lack of sensibility in some of the comments that have been made uh, is, is striking to me about Roswell, about UFOs in general, and uh, and I say so in the forward. I don't think any of these books have had forwards where somebody tears into the government. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, the next question comes from David G and it's, it's a bit of a, I was kind of disappointed in this question, but you you have a thicker skin than I do. So I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, I'll read it here. Uh, he asks, do you think there might be a time when you might bow out of the insanity of the UFO field and write a real book about real topics that might make you some money? I presume that's real money. <laughs> well, uh, I, I've talked about writing another book, uh, and uh, there are some intriguing uh, abduction cases that are worthy of, of fuller attention. But uh, I didn't get into this to to make some real money. Uh, and, you know, I don't get paid nearly as much as the noisiest, noisiest negativist did. Uh, but I, I made an, I, my goal has been to support my family. And so the the books are icing on the cake. Sure, it's nice to get recognition and all that sort of stuff. And I just gave another uh, college lecture, and I'm giving another one. I used to do them all the time. But bowing out, hey, I'm 78 years old. You want me to start a new career <laughs> at 78? I mean, come on. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, I take issue here with the, uh, the, the, the statement, write a real book about real topics. I mean, it, I'm as hard on the UFO field as anybody, but it's a real topic, and, and, and your books are real books. I don't know what, what, where he gets that. I'm, I'm not ashamed at all of flying saucers and science. A lot of references, a lot I deal with all the tough aspects. I take on people like Isaac Asimov and Ben Bova and Arthur C. Clarke and Carl Sagan and, uh, you know, the noisy negativists. Uh, and I'm not ashamed of those books at all. Uh, exactly. And I, I get good comments about them still. Oh, Flying Saucers and Sciences is outstanding. I've actually given it as a gift to several people uh, to try and smarten them up. So, and I Good idea. <laughs> I do. I recommend that to everybody out there, especially nowadays with the uh, the holiday season. So, perfect, perfect uh, gift for your... They're listed on my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. There you go. Uh, next email or next question comes from Thomas C. He wants to know your thoughts on the Mars rover program, Curiosity Science Lab in particular. Is it a good choice of tools? And he asks about the uh, current state on NASA's future, he wants to know. So the future of human space exploration... Uh, additionally, now that the private sector is sort of a space race going on in the private sector. Well, I'm, I'm all for the uh, private sector getting involved. Uh, I've often said, quite frankly, because I was in the space program back in the 60s, I've often said that what's missing from NASA is guts, leadership. They needed an Admiral Rickover, and they didn't have one. And for people who don't know who he was, he was responsible for the nuclear navy in spite of the uh, battleship guys who said, what do you want to build a submarine for? Give us a bigger battleship. <laughs> we 
had nuclear submarines in 1956, and we have nuclear aircraft carriers that can go around the world. I mean, well, they can operate for 18 years without refueling. That's a huge step forward. Yeah. And so they had a goal, and Rickover's approach was, you don't want to go there? Get off the ship. I'll get some people who do. So I think NASA has been uh, chicken. Uh, The worst meeting I ever sat on in my life, and I had a lot of them when I was in industry, at Aerojet General, I was visiting there, and I worked for Westinghouse on the nuclear rocket program. They run the nuclear rocket program. And my contact said, hey, Stan, you want to go to a NASA meeting here? What's it about? Oh, what should we do with the nuclear rocket? Yeah, I want to go to that. Well, shilly, shalling, we could do this. We could put a base on the moon. We could go to Mars, but I don't know if the public... It wasn't the slightest bit of, this is what we want to do, folks. Let's get behind it and do it. Yeah. No guts. And so I'm not impressed with NASA, and I am impressed with people who say, look, I'm in business to make money. That means i got to sell stuff. i got to get income. That means i got to do something, not just talk about doing something. And, you know, capitalism is the right to fail. Look how many computer companies that used to be and aren't anymore. Yeah, yeah. So NASA doesn't seem to be the right one, at least based on their past history. The programs I worked on, uh, I was not impressed with NASA. I'm impressed with the space program. Don't don't misunderstand me. I've known several astronauts, and I'm very impressed. Well, as a matter of fact, the one of the forwards to my book, Flying Saucer and Science, was Edgar Mitchell, a sixth man to walk on the moon. Mm-hmm. And I've met several other astronauts. Uh, but I think uh, I'd like to see private industry get much more involved. I mean, you know, it, it, the way things are, if the government was in charge of building computers... They'd be 10 years behind where we are now, and they'd cost three times as much, hmm. uh, I think. Yeah. And so I'm all for private industry getting involved. You must have seen that article that came out a few days ago, the, the company that's going to do the private trips to the moon by 2020. I, I just caught a, a headline. I didn't see the article. The, the price for a seat is $750 million, So. <laughs> well, it's going to come down. I hope so. <laughs> It's like those no, I, I'm all for it. I mean, uh, you know, I know Bob Bigelow, hmm. and he's got projects going on up there, and hotels in space, and uh, one has to be realistic about what people want to spend their money on, and who's going to buy this kind of stuff. And he did ask, I was asked there about curiosity. I'm very impressed by the technology. Uh, I mean, the, the way that thing landed, my goodness, what an incredible... <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, uh, very impressive. Gutsy. But I wish NASA would open up the box on flying saucers. I mean, you want to be impressed. Uh, let's look at the aliens that are coming here in, vehicle, uh, in vehicles that we can't duplicate. That's impressive to me. Well, he has also a, a sort of piggyback question uh, that uh, all sort of... Uh take uh, take up here and, and, and post to you, and that's, um, I'm going to twist it a little bit, but he, he asks if you expect a renewal in interest in nuclear propulsion relative to Mars and beyond exploration, and I'm, I'm going to sort of twist it a little bit and just ask, are you surprised that these private companies haven't turned to the, to the nuclear propulsion concept, or is it because of the whole, you know, uh, I guess you could say cultural 
baggage attached to nuclear power. There, there is cultural baggage, uh, unfortunately, and Fukushima didn't help any. Hmm. Uh, but I must say, I was in a, on a panel in uh, near Cape Kennedy, as a matter of fact, and there was a NASA guy on a panel, and this goes back, oh, 10 years anyway. We're talking about using nuclear upper stages to go to Mars, which is what it's intended for, the uh, fission systems. And I said, well, you're only about 30 years late. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we had successes back in the 60s, for goodness sakes. So, uh, and you know, one of the remarkable things about the Apollo program is we had a goal, and it felt like a national goal, and all Americans took pride in that. And you know what? We didn't stop because three guys died in a fire, did we? No. And we didn't stop when other things happened. That's the price of progress. Uh, you know, there's going to be some things that go wrong. You learn from them. You don't say, oh, gee, I better not do it. <laughs> exactly. It's dangerous. Uh, you know, uh, Columbus had guts. <laughs> he didn't know whether he'd fall off at the other end or not. Yeah. Uh, next question comes from James C. He wants to know uh, if it's true that there was a Harvard University-led geological expedition in late June or early July in Roswell, New Mexico, in 1947. He, he thinks he heard you comment on this once. A Harvard-led geological expedition. Well, there are. there's no question that there were geologists monkeying around in New Mexico. You know, after the war, there was money available for some research. But, uh, oh, and I think he's talking, oh, I wish I could remember the guy's name. Uh, very simple name, very straightforward name. And uh, there were groups down there. They weren't looking for UFOs, incidentally. They were looking for, New Mexico has a lot of signs that there had been old civilizations there. So naturally, if you want to do a Ph.D. thesis, the guys with the G.I. bills, you know, and come out of the service. Uh, Herb Dick, that was his name. Uh from Harvard, hmm? there were uh, anthropological more than geological, really, and there were guys up in Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, there were a lot of uh, geolog, well, anthropologists, as they say, uh, in New Mexico. Uh, they weren't chasing flying saucers, though. Okay. Um, all right, next question comes from Mark. He wants to, he says, if Roswell really did happen and we were able to back engineer some alien technology and then integrated that technology into our military systems, then why are we surprised that they are able to shut down our missiles or turn off the systems in our fighter jets? If we're using well, their technology, they have a better grasp of it, he says. Well, I, you know, there's a difference between learning something about a craft. As an example I used to use, you send small pieces of the wreckage, and it wasn't small pieces on the Foster Ranch there, uh, out to your top labs with uh, high-level security clearances, and you say, what is this stuff? No. You don't tell them where you got it. And they come back, and somebody says, oh, it's a combination of samarium and cobalt. Why would you put those together? Well, that's somebody else's problem. You send it out to other people. Okay, what are the electrical, magnetic, thermal properties of this stuff? And a guy comes back and says, you know, I don't know what this stuff is or where you got it. But uh, it's got the highest magnetic moment of any material I've ever measured. Make 
great magnets for ghetto blasters. And that's what those were made out of, was a combination of samarium and cobalt. Well, I used to use that as an example, and then I did a weekly science commentary for CBC Radio here in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And I'm reading an article about new and better permanent magnets and uh, neodymium iron boron. Those are real now. <laughs> and uh, toward the end of the article, it says, the original work on samarium cobalt was done at Wright Air Development Center. And I just burst out laughing. That's at Wright-Patterson Air Force. Yeah, yeah. So you've learned something. That doesn't mean you've been able to reconstruct the entire vehicle, but you've learned something new and useful. Hmm. So uh, another example uh, in one of my books, there's a picture of me with my hand on the Apollo 12 command module. Big, round, blunt body. But I thought a high-speed aircraft in the atmosphere is supposed to have pointy nose, sharp wings, highly streamlined, you know, like the X-15. But we go to the moon, comes back at 25,000 miles an hour. It's a big, round, blunt body. It wouldn't surprise me at all, because I know that they did wind tunnel tests at the end of 1947 at Wright-Patt on round, blunt bodies, measuring lift, drag, and all that sort of stuff. So it may very well be that the inspiration for that was the flying saucer. Because what I've learned in industry is that the best guarantee of success in what you're in something new that you're trying to do is to know that what you're trying to do can be done. Right. The Russians, for example, after the war, knew that you could make nuclear bombs. <laughs> the United States <laughs> did. Now, Hitler, on the other hand, didn't know. So he didn't want to spend much of his money on something that might not come around soon enough to help him win the war. Yeah. And so these are things that influence what goes on. So I don't think we have fully integrated alien technology. Uh, people just don't understand how complicated things are. I mean, give Christopher Columbus a nuclear submarine and an unlimited budget. Chris, I need two more of these. Could he have built one? Not a chance. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Scott C. says, or asks, being a nuclear physicist, you must have some ideas about possible engines or fuel sources for these craft. Presumably he means UFOs. <laughs> well, okay, we got two different problems. One is how do you get from star A to star B, where star B is the sun. Uh, and the other is once you're here, how do you zip around in the atmosphere where you've got uh, high temperatures and pressures and all kinds of things, where between the stars you ain't got nothing, man. And uh, I think for the deep space problem, nuclear fusion is a good solution. As I say, I worked on studies of it. It'll work. Yeah. Just uh, it's going to take a lot of dough. Uh, within the atmosphere, and I've said this in my congressional testimony, which is on the Internet, uh, 1968, July 29th, uh, my birthday, incidentally. That's not why they held the hearings those days. <laughs> <laughs> And there is talk of another set of hearings uh, Steve Bassett is talking about. I've been invited to participate in, a, in five days before a simulated congressional hearing with five ex-congressmen listening to 40 witnesses in five days and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, within the atmosphere, I like magneto-aerodynamics. In 1970, I had a literature search, and I was briefly working for McDonnell Douglas before the program was canceled. Um, and I used uh, one word, magneto-aerodynamics, for a literature search of the technical report literature. This is not the open scientific literature, but right. we've got a government study. You've got to write a report. 
Anyway, I got 900 references, 90% of which were classified oh, wow. using the word magnetoaerodynamics. So somebody was doing a lot of work in that area. Hmm. So I think within the atmosphere, uh, you know, and people are aware of this in a rough way. When a meteor comes in or when Apollo comes back, you heat the air, it glows, the, that ionized air plasma uh, interact with electric and magnetic fields, and you can control lift, drag, heating, all the good things, and uh, get silent propulsion and all that sort of stuff. So that that's as a first cut. Would it be easy? No, of course it wouldn't be easy. You know, trying to build a microcircuit 20 years ago wouldn't have been easy. <laughs> um, all right, Corey T is the next uh, is the next questioner, and he. He sets it up first by saying there's no doubt that popular culture can introduce concepts and ideas into our minds directly and indirectly, especially through the power of entertainment. I often wonder about the evolution of movies and literature throughout the 50s and 60s and whether or not collectively, if they created the atypical type of abduction experience, perhaps at the subconscious level. And then here's the question for you, which I'm, I think you actually already answered earlier here. He says, Though I feel certain that Betty and Barney Hill experienced something major, has anyone ever researched perhaps their own backgrounds regarding exposure to pop culture of the time? Well, yeah, this is discussed and captured. Uh, they were, had other things on their mind. Uh, they were very active in the community. Barney was on the Governor's Civil Rights uh, Commission. Uh, they were active in church studies. Betty was a social worker, after all. And as a matter of fact, uh, they took Kathleen Martin, who did most of the work on Captured, uh, to the inauguration of Lyndon Johnson in 1964. Uh, they were, had an invitation. Uh, and so uh, I, I think they really were abducted. The star map is an indication of that. And Dr. Benjamin Simon, the psychiatrist who did the hypnosis work, one of the world's uh, experts on treatment of well, shell shock, but post-traumatic stress disorder sounds much more sophisticated. Same thing. Uh, he said that the emotional intensity, as they relived these experiences, was equally as strong as that of any of the thousands of war veterans he worked with. He ran a hospital for 3,000 beds for guys who came back from the Second World War, shell shock, uh, you know, PTSD. And coming from him, he had to stop one session each because he wasn't sure they could handle it. In other words, heartbeat going up like crazy. Yeah, terror. Real terror. So, um, I think his comments, he didn't know a damn thing about flying saucers. But that wasn't the point. He was to help them uncover the mystery of the missing time. What happened? And uh, separately, and they used his well-known well known techniques. As a matter of fact, the Army had a movie made, Let There Be Light, starring Dr. Simon, uh, showing how he brought, you know, your guy's buddy's head's been blown off next to him. That's a little hard to integrate into normal life. Right, right. You know, so they couldn't have had anybody better than Dr. Simon. And that's what makes the difference about that case compared to so many others. He didn't put any words in their minds. He knew what he was doing. Right, right. I think it's and, been pretty fairly uh, discredited, the idea that they were influenced by pop culture to to, no, to no. have these stories happen. So, 
not at all. They didn't want it. They, um, this business of Barney watching a science fiction movie on television, I forget it. Well, the ironic part is if you, if you really sort of apply Occam's razor to the whole thing, uh, that argument, if that, if that argument held water, then the, then they wouldn't be the only people having these experiences. There would have been a rash of of sort of this story going on before. You know what I mean? Yeah, inspiration by science fiction. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, and that didn't happen, so it no. stands to reason that that couldn't be the case. Um, right. Good thinking. The next question comes from Carl D., who says, uh, It seems like the same old UFO stories are rehashed again and again in both favorable and unfavorable documentaries. <laughs> but I have heard Stan say that there are something like 3,000 pieces or 3,000 cases with physical evidence. It was on Larry King, I think, when Michael Shermer was there, too. Anyway, he says, can Stan review some of the best physical evidence cases and speculate as to why they aren't covered more often and exactly what evidence mainstream academic science would accept as proof or, quote, really good evidence, unquote, <laughs> short of the UFO on the White House lawn? Well, uh, you know, I, what, the reason uh, is very simple. Ted Phillips hasn't written his book yet. Uh, Ted's been collecting physical trace case data for more than 40 years. He was a protege of Alan Hynek. And at one time, he had as many as, uh, I don't know, 4,000 cases. It went up from the day I said that on King. Uh, 4,000 cases from like 80 countries. These are cases where people see something on or near the ground, and after it leaves, one finds physical changes. The equivalent of burn circles, burn rings, landing gear marks footprints in some cases. One six of those cases involve reports of beings, creatures, whatever you want to call them, associated with the craft. And, you know, I, I hate to say this, but after you read your first 200 cases, it's still the same thing is happening all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I actually had some of the first tests run on the soil uh, where there was one of these circles in Delphos, Kansas. And uh, there's no question that the area of the circle, what, what lifesaver shaped about 10 feet in outer diameter, about a foot across, uh, down 14 inches, that soil was changed. It was dried out. And uh, good lab tests showed it had a higher level of soluble minerals. It was too salty to grow anything, and it wouldn't grow anything. Uh, but Ted never did write his book. I wish that it could be written because, as I say, there's so much of that stuff. And... When you get similar reports from all over the world, you know, what are you going to do? Everybody's crazy in the same kind of way. Uh, you know, well, the creatures look the same. Now, these were not the mothership cases. They don't usually seem to land on the ground. But when you get cases like the uh, Japan Airlines case, this thing twice the size of an aircraft carrier circling around a 747, seen by the guys out the window and by their radar, and they radio the ground, and the ground radar sees them and the other object. Um, it was a big old thing. And the Yukon case, between 0.6 and 1.2 miles long, 30-some witnesses that Martin Jasek collected. And, you know, uh, again, when you get multiple independent people uh, describing the same things, and where you have a, a careful researcher, and Martin Jasek was a civil engineer. That's why I was able to triangulate the thing. He took great attention and care. And, yes, I've met him and been in his home and so forth. <clears throat> Very impressive. So these physical cases 
if they were put into a book, I think would be extraordinarily convincing. Now, they're not spectacular in the sense nobody's talking about aliens uh, dancing on a graveyard or, you know, it, it doesn't have the, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But there is an enormous amount of evidence. Yes, I did say that and I stick by it. Okay, and just uh, just to follow up a little bit on his question here, he he says, uh, you know, what what exactly exactly what evidence would be enough is kind of what he's saying. It, it does seem difficult. I mean, what what would finally get us over the hump? It would have to be an alien or a UFO, a solid UFO, right? Well, or the government releasing right. a bunch of data. Yeah, uh, and it's got plenty of it. And the thing is, uh, if if you have groups like um, NARCAP. National Advisory Commission on Atmospheric Aircraft Phenomena, Anomalistic Aircraft Phenomena, I forget what NARCAP stands for, (laughs) but they've collected, it's run by pilots, and Dr. Richard Haynes, who worked for NASA, incidentally, retired now, uh, as their chief scientist, if you will, they have well over a thousand reports from pilots who don't want their names used, I might add, for obvious reasons. Because many of them felt they'd lose their jobs, or they have buddies who were sent for psychological testing. That's enough to discourage the other guys, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, there's a re- their report should be adequate for anybody. I mean, there are an awful lot of things that we accept without having the body in the in the front yard, <laughs> kind of thing. Exactly. Look at all the testimony in criminal cases. You know, uh, yeah, sometimes you have fingerprints, but you usually don't have the finger when it comes to aliens <laughs> with the footprints and so forth. There you go. Um, all right, we're in the final four questions now, so we're real close. Um, Scott C. Uh, asks or makes the point here, with the ever-increasing commonality of UFO information via television shows, movies, radio, and online, is it possible that the subject has become sterile at this point? due to how much the masses hear about the subject, thereby making it less significant in the same way people are numb to political and religious thinking? Well, it's certainly possible, and that's why I mentioned at the beginning the book The Alien Abduction Files by Kathleen Martin Martin and Denise Stoner from Career Press should be out in a few months. It's a different approach to the abduction phenomena and gets away from the the standard fare, if you will. Mm. And uh, I hope that will encourage other people. Uh, what I've found, incidentally, that there's an old notion. New ideas, uh, Max Planck said this, great physicist, 100 years ago. New ideas come to be accepted, not because their opponents come to believe in them, but because their opponents die and a new generation grows up that's accustomed to them. Yes. And I detect a lot of people being accustomed to the idea of flying saucers and alien visitors. Part of that is Kepler. I mean, when suddenly we're talking, instead of Frank Drake's 8,000 planets maybe in the galaxy, so maybe it's 8 billion. That changes the, the yeah, odds. Yeah, I'll say, yeah. The whole picture. And so uh, I, I think it's coming to be accepted more. Despite the Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, you know, it's only kooks see UFOs. I mean, that really is pretty silly. And uh, so I, I'm an optimist. I think things are going to be better. Th- this book uh, should be an important part of that. And I think you're going to get 
some physical scientists who may decide that, you know, it's time to do things right. And forget all the SETI stuff. SETI stands for Silly Effort to Investigate. Uh, you know, that's my interpretation yeah. anyway. And, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, it's not that these are bad people, but they sure haven't looked at the relevant evidence, and they don't dare to. Exactly. All right, uh, next question comes from Marco, uh, and he actually has two questions. It reminds me of uh, back when we used to do the Exeter shows. Uh, I, I would host the Q&A at the end of the evening and say, when the line would form, you have to just have one question, folks. You just have to have one question because we have limited time. And then the first person in line would immediately say, hi, thank you. I have two questions. So this is, this is Marco has fulfilled the, uh, the, the UFO enthusiast uh, quota there. So he has two questions, but they're pretty simple, and, and the, both of them were very intriguing to me. So we'll, 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 uh, okay. we'll break the rules and do that for him. He says, there was a rumor back in 67 on the Long John Neville show that Frank Edwards may have been assassinated. A local and longtime researcher and close friend of Edwards, Earl Neff, now deceased, took a cursory look into it and couldn't verify anything. Have you heard of this? Well, I did know Frank Edwards, and it was because of his book, Flying Saucer's Serious Business, that I went public. I asked him for names of some people. Time to speak out. He gave me the name of a producer in uh, Pittsburgh of the Contact radio show. Would you believe that? (laughs) And I called them. They weren't particularly interested. I was working for Westinghouse. I thought they would be, but they called me then a month later. Uh, Could you be on tonight? This is at 6.30 to be on a 7 o'clock show. I live near the station. And that was my first show, KDKA Pittsburgh, and I went on from there. And that was because of Frank, and I introduced him when he spoke in Pittsburgh. And I knew Earl Neff, too, from uh, Cleveland. And I actually, uh, this will sound a little strange, but I did talk to Frank's wife after his death. Uh, I also talked to Jim McDonald's wife and daughter after his death because there were rumors flying around. And so I wanted to make sure, you know, how did they feel about that, these people. And uh, Frank went to bed. He was very tired, he told her, and he never woke up. Uh, I'm satisfied it was a natural death. Uh, and with McDonald, it was suicide. And I talked to his daughter about that. I normally wouldn't ask, but people were coming up with all kinds of rumors like the ones you just mentioned. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... So, you know, I had yeah. to find out from the source. I, I'm not what I read in some newspaper. I talked to McDonald's uh, office mate at, at the university and his daughter and his wife. Now, how much more can I do than that, you know? So with Frank, no, I don't see any reason to think that there was a conspiracy, a death, a murder, or whatever you want to call it, no. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, some things never change because, you know, Mac Tony's no. passed away a few years ago, and there's all kinds of people who insist that he was taken out or something. And, and you know, Paul Kimball and Greg Bishop, and they know Mac's family, and they know that that's not true. So it's yeah. a frustrating sort of uh, thing, but people have to go to the sensational route. The other question Marco had, he says, uh, I had the opportunity to talk with Betty Hill on the phone sometime back in the mid-70s. At the time, she said she was putting together a picture book of sorts on UFOs. As we were speaking, she said she was having a security system installed or the locks changed because someone had broken into her home and had stolen her photos. Do you know if she ever completed the book? He's never seen it anywhere. There, Betty did... Um publish a book uh, in her own words, and Kathleen Martin, my co-author on two books, 
uh, still has a few copies of that. And uh, Kathleen is on the internet. She's got a website. Uh, look her up, K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N-M-A-R-D-E-N. You'll get her website and probably list that book. So she did write a book, and there were some break-ins there. We never did know what a couple of them meant. You had the feeling the aliens had gone and come in. Yeah, I remember the earrings. Left some stuff, left some stuff behind, uh, and you know how did it get there and so right. forth. So, the earrings, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We talked right about on. that on a previous show. Yeah, that's a okay. terrifying story. Um, okay, uh, we're on the second to last question here. Mark L says or asks. Most people that claim they are abducted talk about seeing aliens. Very rarely do they talk about aliens wearing any type of breathing apparatus. How is it that they are able to breathe our atmosphere so easily? He makes the analogy of climbing a mountain, how, you, how the air gets thinner. Are you, Stan, aware of any other cases other than Travis Walton that talks about difficulty breathing while being abducted? And what are your thoughts on aliens being so similar to us that they can breathe our atmosphere so easily? Well, question. we don't know that they may not be acclimatized. You know, you got to take a three-month course in breathing <laughs> Earth's atmosphere. But, uh, no, I, I look at it the other way around. I think uh, the ammonia breathers go to Jupiter for their vacations. What can I say? The grad students, uh, you know, doing their thing. Uh, I think there's a kind of commonality. I wouldn't surprise me at all if Earthlings are the result of previous colonization, migration, whatever. And uh, that there may be other forms of life. On the other hand, there are some good analyses showing that humans seem to be a, a kind of sensible design. You know, you need the head at the top of the body so you can see your enemies. Uh, you need some kind of a device for grasping things so you can ma manipulate stuff. Uh, you know, two eyes is fine. You don't need three. Two ears, you can uh, get a direction from stuff you hear and stuff like that. So I, I think we may be the result of colonization, migration. I like one thought is that we're the devil's island of this corner of the galaxy. They dumped all the bad boys and girls here. That's why we're so nasty to each other. That's as good an explanation as I know. <laughs> I mean, how can a planet justify spending a trillion dollars a year on things military when literally thousands of children die every single day of preventable disease or starvation? That tells you a lot about us. Primitive society, major activity, tribal warfare. And so I, I, that's a better explanation than some I can think of as to how, why we're so evil to each other. Uh, and I got the shock of my life. Gal from New York, worked for CBS, had a college degree. She was in her 30s. This is several years ago. She came up to talk to me. We went to lunch. And afterward, I'm telling her about uh, why aliens would come here, because at the end of the war, it was clear pretty soon we'd be moving out and we're a threat to the neighborhood. I said, after all, we killed uh, 50 million people in the war and destroyed 1,700 cities. And before I could finish, she says, oh, I don't believe that. What don't you believe? Well, I don't think we killed 50 million people. Well, how many do you think got killed during World War II? Only three or four million. That answer scared the heck out of me. Yeah. Because if you don't realize how evil man can be, he will do it again. Uh, I mean, six million in the Holocaust, a whole bunch of Russians and Chinese and Japanese and all kinds of other people. Uh, so, you know, the concept is, is, is a little weird. And I should add one other thing, you know, the 
the Australians are very proud of their uh, convict ancestors. Honest. The English yeah. debtor prisons were emptied. They dumped them down in Australia. So uh, what I'm saying is uh, we got to go with what we got. Like I say, ammonia breathers go to Jupiter that way. Exactly. <laughs> <Not here. laughs> um, all right. The final question comes from Dan F., who asks, do you know if any U.S. government agencies are currently investigating UFOs? If so, which agencies, and how did you find out this information? FOI requests. <laughs> I hate to laugh, but it's, it seems sort of an oddball. Yeah. Personal yeah. contacts or other sources. Uh, I think th th there's no question, if you go back to General Bolander, there are procedures set up for dealing with the reports which could uh, affect national right. security. And all of those are owned by the government. In other words, the pilots and high-performance aircraft, the guys running the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office, spy satellites, all those other things. I'm sure they got plenty of data and that there's the equivalent of a Majestic 12, if you will. Uh, do I have any straight statement from the government saying so? Of course not. That would be classified. Uh, but if they read my book, Top Secret Magic, they'll see I do make a strong case for three genuine MJ-12 documents, Majestic 12, Magic 12. And, oh, I didn't mention there's going to be a movie, Magic Men, M-A-J-I-C. Yes. Uh, my book and uh, Don Schmidt and uh, Tom Carey's book, Witness to Roswell, and put them together. That'll be one book, uh, you know, sort of like JFK and all the president's men. Uh, and I want Richard Dreyfuss to play me, of course. Uh, <laughs> and there will the same guys, uh, Bryce Zabel, Stellar Productions. They have also bought the uh, film rights and two uh, captured the yeah. Betty Barney Hill UFO experience. And the uh, screenplay has already been rewritten four times, so we're almost getting there for Magic Men. So I might live long enough to see two of my books converted into movies. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that wraps up the listener questions. I had one more question here for you uh, that I had myself that uh, I thought of uh, over the course of this conversation and, and previously uh, leading into this, and that's just that, you know, we've discussed your background at length here on the many conversations we've had, and, you know, how you had the – think you got an extra book – and that's what sort of spawned the whole uh, interest in UFOs. And I'm yeah. sure many other people of that time and of of your scientific, uh, you know, acumen took a look at that book too. I mean, why do you think uh, that you kept going with it? You know, why didn't you just read it, say, "Oh, that's interesting," and then sort and then just you know, put it away? What what, what spawned you to well, to dive into this? A couple of things. One, it's a natural. Uh, match for my strong points. Uh, I'm a Leo. I enjoy being on the stage. I was in high school debating, uh, and I found that I really enjoy performing, if you will. Secondly, I worked on classified programs, so I can deal with those questions. Governments can't cover things up. Right. Well, yes, they can. Third, I worked on advanced technology, so I see answers to the questions. Can you get here from there? Can you move like this or that? Hmm. And fourth, what I found is that people are really interested in the why questions. Data I present, they don't quarrel with it because I show them facts, information, tables from reports, all that sort of thing. But they really want to know, so why would aliens come here? Why doesn't the government tell us what it knows? Why don't they land on the White House lawn? And 
all these kinds of questions. And because I've heard them all before, of course, I have answers ready. And the usual response is, gee, I hadn't thought of that before. I should add, I've only had 11 hecklers out of over 700 lectures, and two of them were drunk. And you'd get more than that if you talk about sports, religion, or politics, I am assured. I don't talk about those things. So I have loved the response I've gotten on a ham. Not kosher, but on a ham. <laughs> and uh, I enjoy the feedback, what people say at the end of my lectures and after they've heard me on radio or television or whatever. So I've kept at it because it's a natural fit with my proclivities, if you will. And I worried when I got started that somebody's going to smash it all with stuff that I don't know anything about. Never happened. So it, I like, you know, people say, when are you going to retire, Stan? I said, why should I retire? I like what I'm doing. I like my boss. That's me. <laughs> uh, you know, as long as I'm healthy. Now, that's the one kicker, of course. But mm -hmm. I've been very lucky. I have never spent overnight in a hospital for me. Uh, Excellent. Not many people at age 78 can say that. So that's true. Now, just uh, just to piggyback on that final question, uh, I remember talking to George Knapp a few years ago, and he was saying how you know when he first started looking into this, he was like, "Well, I'll get to the bottom of this." And in you no, know, you know, in short order, and sure. you know, you've been doing this for fifty years. Are you surprised that that it's taken so long, and we still haven't made it to the to the conclusion of this story? Uh, no, I'm not, because as I tell people, this is the biggest story of the millennium. Four major conclusions: first, Earth is being visited by extraterrestrial spacecraft, some UFOs or alien spacecraft. Second, we're dealing with a cosmic Watergate. Some few people in government know a lot about the subject and aren't telling us. Third, we're dealing with the, there are no good arguments against those first two conclusions. And fourth, we're dealing with the biggest story of the millennium. I say two millennia, then I run into religious problems. I don't, I don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a natural fit. I would never have predicted this if you'd asked me in 1964, you know, when I was going to be, you're going to spend full time as a ufologist? What are you, crazy? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I better add a little story that I don't often tell on the air. People say, why did you choose to do this and get out of industry? And so I was driving across the country to take the ideal job, trying to figure out how saucers work for McDonnell Douglas Astronautics, Dr. Robert Wood. And uh, I was really excited about it. Halfway across the country, the program that was going to be sponsoring my work was canceled. I walked in the door, and she says, uh, you know, we just laid off 5,000 people. I said, yeah, I know that. <laughs> I had to support my family, so they kept me on for three months, and uh, uh, the rest is, let's work your butt off to get lectures, and I did, and very well received, so let's do it. But it was not a conscious choice. Oh, I want to be a ufologist, a heck with this industrial science kind of stuff. Not at all. Yeah, you said that in the past, the, the, uh, the bottom fell out of the nuclear yeah. work. So, well, you know something, we're richer for it in the field so you know as Good. luck would have it um now that that wraps up the uh the annual conversation here what's coming up for you in 2013 provided we make it through uh <laughs> the end of the buying calendar <laughs> well if we don't we won't know about it yeah uh I, i'm going to be at roswell again i'm speaking uh, i've got several lectures coming up uh, in texas and utica new york uh, they'll be on my website i got to update it uh but, uh, you know, we're, we're going to go at, oh, the International UFO Congress in Phoenix, the end of uh, February, uh, February to March. Uh, 
So um, I'll still be doing what I've been doing and check out the website, and they'll find out. Excellent, excellent. How about uh, now you said you got the foreword for that new uh, abduction book, which is great because abduction needs a, yep. a shot in the arm, so I'm hoping that that'll, yes, uh, that'll do that for it because it's really had some bad years in the last few years. Um, so beyond the, the introduction for that, any any uh, future books you got working on or considering or anything like that, I'm still going to once well, again make my annual push for the uh, for the memoir. So please do well, that. Yeah, I may have to do that because that deal with the movie – includes uh, memoirs and personal history and stuff like that, so it may force me to finally sit down and do what needs to be done. Absolutely, so please please do that. Well, on that note, Stan, I can't thank you enough. As I said, uh, this is really uh, getting choked up here. I mean, you're the first guy I ever interviewed, so... <laughs> and it's been 200-plus since then, and to uh, and, okay. and to know that eight of them have been you every year for the holiday special is just so humbling and it's a thrill for me that you've become such a part of this program. So It's my pleasure indeed. I enjoy it. You know something. Some interviewers don't know much. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying I'm the exception to the rule there? <laughs> yes. Well, thank you very much and uh, happy holidays to you and, and to all the listeners and thank you for their questions and thank you once again for, for being a part of the holiday tradition, my friend. Happy 213-2013. There you go. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. That does it for the 8th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Big, big thanks once again to the legendary Stan Friedman for returning to the program and taking part in this year's festivities. If you have not done so yet, please check out the website, www.stantonfriedman.com, and get the books by Stanton Friedman. They are must-own tomes for any serious student of ufology. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. But it is December 24th. I'm looking at the clock. It is 12 noon on Christmas Eve. And if I do not get my sleigh in gear. This program will arrive sometime after Santa Claus. So we will skip listener feedback. Plus, we featured 20 questions from BOA audio listeners here on the program. Kind of an impromptu feedback, if you will. Pardon the pun. But a lot of listener feedback already here on the program for Stanton Friedman. So we can skip listener feedback here this week. And of course, I really just want to take a moment once again to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and an awesome holiday season. Chances are you'll be hearing from me after the new year. So I hope you all have a very safe and joyous new year as well. Be safe out there, folks. I can't stress that one enough. A lot of maniacs on the road on New Year's Eve. I know I skipped listener feedback at the end of the program last week, so a thousand apologies here for skipping it once again. Let's just tag this as my 2013 New Year's resolution to really feature more consistent BOA audio listener feedback at the end of the program. And on that note, let me give you the means to contact me if you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA audio listener feedback. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. 
or you can head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, of america.com, and click the contact button. If you'd like something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. You can also find that by clicking the forum button at BOA. It has been all of America's paranormal playground, theusofe.com. Lots of great conversation going on there regarding the world of the paranormal as well as pop culture. As far as social networks go, of course, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and my profile will pop right up. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, there is Benal of America on Facebook. I think since the last time you've heard from me, we've reached 867 people. So we're within relative striking distance of the big 1,000. And as we did for number 800, whoever makes it to number 900 will get a shout-out here at the end of the program. So like us on Facebook, and hopefully we'll reach these milestone numbers in the not-too-distant future. Up next, please allow me to take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. I hope all of the amazing BOA staff have a fantastic holiday season as well. Thank you for all of your support here in 2012. Now comes the time in the program where I ring a little bell and ask you to put some change in the bucket for Banal of America. I'd like to tell you all that we have some awesome holiday deals at BOA, but that would not be true, my friends, because all 200-plus episodes of the program are and always have been absolutely free for the BOA audio listeners. With that said, such an undertaking, of course, costs us money. So if you could help us out and make a donation to Banal of America, it would be greatly appreciated. How do you do that? That's simple. There are two ways to help us out. You can head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But what if you don't trust the internet? What if you want to send us something via snail mail? Well, you're in luck because we have a Benal of America P.O. Box. And the address for that is Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. The complete address can be found at Banal of America, and if you send us something, please make any donations payable to Tim Banal and not Banal of America, since my bank is anal and will not honor those donations. And please include some form of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your help. As always, it bears repeating my friends, no donation is too small, and all donations go 
towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Finally, now comes the plug for the next edition of the program. This one's a bit tenuous because I'm really hoping to do our annual ufology slash paranormal year in review with Greg Bishop as a live program. And I have not actually spoken to Greg yet to set up a date and time for that live program. So it's all very up in the air. And given that it is the holiday season, I have a tremendously jam-packed schedule. I'm sure Greg does as well. We may have to forego doing it as a live program unless we can find an agreeable time for the both of us to sit down and have all of the BOA Audio listeners tuning in at the moment. So stay tuned to Been All of America on Facebook and at the website and on the forum for more information on when that live edition of the program may air. If we can't do it live, I'll let you all know, of course, and I will definitely try to get the episode into your earbuds within a week or so of the new year. Beyond that, we plugged here at the end of the show on the last edition of the program. We've got a three-hour epic with Paul Kimball coming at you right after the new year starts. I'd also like to bring back our old friend Adam Davies for a conversation on his past year in the world of cryptozoology, so i got to reach out to him and touch base about doing that as well. Following that, I've got a huge list of new guests that I want to get on the program, one of which I've already recorded an interview with, and it is spectacular, but the rest I'm going to be contacting following the holiday. Trust me, these are some amazing guests and people that I'm very excited to be talking to, and hopefully we can lock them in for BOA Audio episodes as 2013 unfolds. As noted, stay tuned to Banal of America on Facebook and all of our various other outlets for further information about upcoming editions of the program. And on that note, we close the book on the 8th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Once again, enormous thanks to the incomparable Stanton Friedman for joining us on this year's festivities. Big, big thanks to all the folks who submitted questions for this year's special. And, of course, a hearty, heartfelt thanks and happy holidays to all you folks out there listening right now. The hardcore BOA audio listeners, the folks who stick with me to the very end of the show. I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and an awesome holiday season You are the very best, and I truly appreciate all of your support this past year and look forward to a wealth of mind-blowing and enlightening conversations that we can all share in 2013. Once again, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist, and thank you for making the BOA Audio Holiday Special a part of your December traditions. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.